All right, well, if you're going to follow along in your Bible, it's always my uh, instruction, my hope that, that you would, that, that you, you study, and mainly because the, the stories are just too good to be true. You just need to make sure that I'm not making them up. We're going to be in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, uh, John is the fourth book of the New Testament, and so if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's, it's just that's an easy way to find it, the fourth book of the New Testament. I, I know that today is, is Super Bowl Sunday. I think, I think that it is the case. Uh, quick, quick announcement. Um, we have a viewing party that will be here, and we don't have a solid head count because our system that collects head counts for signing up didn't actually work the way that we intended. So we know that many of you are coming, and there's going to be bowls of food, so if you want to be a part of that, you can. But uh, I wonder, uh, how many of you, if you're having a party, you've been planning it for a while, you, you have, maybe maybe the brisket is smoking right now as we speak, uh, maybe maybe you've got the, the brisket queso, if I can just, you know, throw that out there, you know, brother likes some brisket queso, so if an extra bowl makes it my way, that's great. Great. Uh, you have the hot wings ready to go. You've got you've got all all the the party things. What if what if you you go to your party and all your friends and all your neighbors are coming and then when you when you go to pull the thing out of the oven like you forgot to turn the oven on and it just wasn't cooking the the brisket's still raw you've run out of drinks like the party just like all the all the hype all the things that you were expecting to make it great is now like oh no what's what's about to happen it's all about to come crashing down uh you know what will happen your team will lose as a result of you failing your super bowl party no that probably won't happen but today we're going to read a story in uh, john chapter 2 of jesus going to a wedding and you you may know the story like oh this is a Part where Jesus turns water into wine, yes, but just like so many of the other stories, we tend, if you're familiar with the Bible, we tend to take the exclamation point and, it, and ignore all of the humanity from the beginning to the exclamation point. We ignore all the middle bits, right? And so, like, if I were teaching the story of Lazarus, you would immediately think, oh, he's going to resurrect Lazarus. But there's a whole funeral, like 30 verses long, that I really like to look at. This story is the story of Jesus turning water into wine, but I want to look at the humanity of it and just ask, like, what would you do if your entire social status was based on this Super Bowl party you're throwing today, and it just is like the writing's on the wall. It's about to come crashing to a halt. Um, that's that's what we're going to look at in a moment. This The series that we're in, we're, we're choosing to try to get a glimpse of Jesus, not from what the culture says about Jesus, not what Time Magazine says the top 10 most Jesus-y things you need to know about him are, or what the History Channel says about Jesus. We're choosing in this series to go to like someone who knew Jesus well and wrote a biography of Jesus about his best friend. A first-person look from John, the disciple, is writing the story about Jesus. And so what we want to do is get a real look at who Jesus is. Who does John say that Jesus is? And is that the, is that the Jesus that we, we know, that we recognize in kind of our American culture? And if, if, you, if you hear this the way that John teaches it, I'm just going to tell you what he says and you decide whether or not it's true. John says that to get Jesus right, to receive Jesus, and then to believe that he's the Son of God gives you, as a result, life. This isn't for John. This isn't just um, a matter of like you know head knowledge. Oh yeah, I've got that right on Jeopardy. You have your your million dollar question about Jesus figured out because you know Jesus really well. For John, it's not about that. For John, it's this is this is about having life, and it's about having life now. And that for those who receive Jesus all through his gospel, for those who receive Jesus, they walk from that moment forward into life. There's an abundance of life in them. And for those who reject Jesus, they continue to, as John would put it, that they continue to walk in darkness. 
And, and I, I've, you decide if that's true uh, by your uh, experiences. I've been persuaded in my own life and the lives of others that I know who have followed Jesus that there's something about following Jesus and trusting in him as the son of God, confessing him as Lord, Paul would say, uh, that seems to cause life. Like people who do that seem to have more peace, more satisfaction, and more life. So I'm persuaded and compelled that John is on to something. And so I think that as we teach this, as we, we go through it, you have to just decide. Like, okay, is, is this just a historical figure or is John onto something? Um, so we're going to pick up uh, in chapter two. What we've already covered is that G- uh, John says that Jesus is the word, that Jesus is the foundation upon which all of creation is built. And so if John is right about Jesus, to, to receive him is to, is to accept the truth about how the universe really works. Um, and if he's wrong about Jesus, then, then you know there's another foundation that we need to go find somewhere else. And I want to ask the question before we begin. Does God care about the things that are really big to you but have no cosmic consequence? Does God care about that job interview? Does God care about your relationship with your coworker that, you know, it's kind of faltering? Does God care about your child who's struggling in school? It, like, you're, to you, those are huge, huge prayer requests, but does it even make it on God's radar? Because he's, you know, he's responsible for the universe and he's got to keep the sun and the moon revolving in the right direction and the whales. Like, who's going to watch out for the whales? Well, God's busy. Is God too busy to care about these things that are big for you but have no cosmic consequence? That's, kind of where we're going to land with, with John. Let's read together, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. We're going, to, we're going to read slow and stop a lot, because there's a lot packed in here. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, uh, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So we've not, as, as far as John is concerned, we've not yet met Mary, Jesus' mom, and G- Mary is at this party. It's on, it's on the third day. Um, there is, in my notes for this sermon, an entire probably 15-minute discussion about why the third day is important, because now we're in day seven of how John is telling his story. I'm going to have to do, I can't, I don't have time. So like, if you're interested in how Genesis and day seven and this wedding all connect together, come ask me later. Maybe we can have like a Facebook group or something, but uh, it's worth your Bible study to, to really dig into it. But we're, we're now, we're now on the third day, day seven after John the Baptist has been professing that, oh, there goes the Lamb of God. If you've been here for the last few weeks, John the Baptist is like, oh, there goes the Lamb of God. And it says the next day, John the Baptist wakes up, he sees Jesus. Oh, there he goes. The Lamb of God is going to take away the sins of the world. He said it so many times that some of his disciples left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. And now on the third day, uh, they're invited to a wedding. Verse two, it says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Why, I wonder, was Jesus invited to this wedding? See, we're, because we live in the future, um, we tend to think of, well, Jesus is the miracle worker. He's walked on water. He's turned water into wine. He's, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and all those stories are true of Jesus, except none of them have happened yet. In fact, the water to the wine thing is like 10 minutes away. So uh, it, it just hasn't happened yet. Jesus, he doesn't have a ton of fame at this moment. And so why would Jesus be invited to the wedding? Well, it could be a couple of things. It could be uh, he has just a little bit of fame because John the Baptist has been talking 
talking about him for days. Like, oh, there he goes. There's the one I've been talking about. So it could be some of that. Uh, it said earlier that uh, Jesus' mother was at the wedding, and this is close to where Jesus lives. And so there's some reason to think. We'll see that Mary's playing a big part in this wedding. So there's a reason to think that Mary may be friends with the bride or friends with the family in some way. She seems to be kind of working the wedding later. And so maybe Jesus is just invited as Mary's plus one, right? Jesus and his disciples, like, come on, Mary. Mary says that you can come. We also find out uh, at the end of John, oddly enough, uh, that one of Jesus' disciples, one of the ones that we just met last week, Nathaniel, actually grew up in Cana. It says Nathaniel from Cana. And so Jesus recruits a disciple, and the disciple's like, but, but Jesus, I want to follow you, but there's a wedding over here. And Jesus may be like, great, I love parties, let's go. And so like they just go to the wedding. Who knows what's really going on here, but it's a little odd that Jesus, the not yet famous one, uh, is being invited to a party. But Jesus and his disciples are there. Um, Mary, Jesus's mom, is there. And if, if you are a mother with adult children, you know that you have a little bit of sway over your kids still. You're like, hey, I need you to go and like help me put up the tin. I need you to help me put up the dishes, stuff like that. And so we're, we're setting up a scene for what's about to happen. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, Okay, so so we can tell what our, our religious backgrounds are in this room. If you grew up Baptist, you're like, oh, that's weird. Wine, I don't know. If you grew up Catholic or you grew up Lutheran, you're like, holy cow! Like they've run out of they've run out of what they've run they've run out of wine at this wedding. We'll we'll unpack it in a moment. When when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, Mary, uh, said to him, "They have no wine." All right, let, let's let's pause for a second. It's just a very obvious thing. They, they've they've completely run out of wine. What what is happening right here? Uh, I want to I want to spend a few minutes. I want to unpack what weddings look like then, because to us a wedding is like uh, if you're if you're lucky you're in and out inside of an hour, right? Like we don't want super long weddings. In fact, whenever I perform weddings, one of the things that like the bride is usually like, hey. Like, I don't mind you talking, but can we, like, keep this under a certain period of time? Like, we've, we've got some things. We only have the facility for a few hours, you know, so we have to, we have to hurry up and get to that. And so for us, weddings are like one, two, three hours long, but weddings then were very different. The way the Jewish culture looked at weddings. It, it is an establishment, not like the courts have set it up. It's not even like the church hasn't even set this thing up. For, for the Jewish mind, the wedding rewinds time all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Whenever Adam and, uh, and Eve are married, God performs the first wedding before the fall of man. And so for the Jewish mind, a wedding celebration is a moment to have a party like you're in the garden, a party like you're in heaven. Right. And so you want this to be big. You want to invite some people. You want it to be full of peace and full of joy because before the fall, there was no sin. There was no shame and there was no brokenness. They would have connected weddings in general. It's, it's like one of their top celebrations. Like you have like Yom Kippur and Passover. In some ways, pass, uh, weddings are like equal to that in their mind as far as celebration goes. A wedding for them looked like this. Um, man meets a girl. Man falls in love with a girl. Hey, you want to get married? And she says, it doesn't matter what I want. Go ask my dad. And so uh, he goes and asks dad, I would like to ask your daughter's hand in marriage. And dad's like, absolutely, young man. I need three goats and a, and a, and a chicken or whatever the dowry is. And uh, so they make the arrangements. And once everybody's in agreement, they are legally engaged. Now, to break an engagement in their world is like a divorce in our world. It, it, an engagement is a pretty meaningful moment. Uh, but beginning at that engagement, uh, husband's like, 
yes, I'm getting married. He leaves and he goes and begins to prepare a room. Usually he adds this onto his dad's house and they have like an extra room right there. And he's going to go prepare a room in this space. This property is going to become their, their, their honeymoon suite. And it's going to become ground zero for a party that's about to happen in uh, you know a few months or years or whatever it's going to take. He prepares the place. He gets everything just right for his bride. Uh, and of course, as the days go on, they're seeing each other in the market like, I'm going to marry you soon. And she's like, hurry up and finish my closet. And I need like a shoe rack and all that. So uh, they're, they're getting it all worked out. And, and he finishes it. And the, the families of the bride and the families of the groom have agreed that we're going to throw the biggest party for the community. Because, because in our culture, in an in a honor-based culture, you want to honor your community. This party is a chance for you to show your community how much they've invested in this couple and how much you love them as a community, as neighbors, as friends. You're inviting everybody that you can. And in an honor-based culture, to attend this wedding is to show that couple that you want what's best for them, that you're supporting them. In fact, they found some laws written that if you gave a shameful gift as your wedding present, you could be held like, you could be sued in court because it was, it was such an honor-based culture. And this wedding would look like this. After everything was ready, you would send out the invites. The groom leaves his house and he gets his friends. He's like, come on, guys. This is like the bridal party. And we're going to go to my bride's parents' home and we're going to pick her up. And they go to the bride's home. And they say, it's time. And she's like, I know. That's why she's dressed nice. And she's got her face put on. And, and she gets her best friends. And so the, the, bride, the, the, the bride's party, uh, and they march back to the groom's home, like parade style. And imagine you're just kind of small town feel. You got people cheering for you. People like, yeah, I love you so much. And you, they went all the way to the, the groom's house. And then they would perform a very, very meaningful, very somber uh, uh, ceremony. And then they're married. And then the party starts. And the party starts after the wedding. And it is going to go on for a day, two days, three days. If you're really wealthy, you can go up to a week of just like people just coming and going and having a celebration. And now you have this moment that the party's already happening. Jesus walks in the door and they've run out of wine. The, 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 the drink that they're going to drink to celebrate this party for days, they've, they've run out. They, they have this party scheduled for four days and they're on day whatever. And, and they've run out and the bride and the groom may not even know this has happened yet. Notice Mary's the one who says it. It's not like the whole party stopped yet. I wonder if Mary knows at this moment. I wonder if Mary knows it's a, it's, it's just a ticking shame bomb about to go off. Because if, if this party doesn't continue in this way to honor the community, this is going to cast a shadow on this couple. This new couple who's trying to start out their life, they're going to be the one, it's going to be like Kool-Aid Carl and Amy No More Winehouse. They, like, nobody loves them. They're going to be made fun of. Their kids might be made fun of at school because the parents of the parents remember, like, hey, that was that party that there was shame. For the rest of their marriage, like, honestly, this could loom over them. And Mary's like, they've run out of wine. Let's be honest real quick. At zero moment in this is anybody else at risk of being hurt except for these families. There's not like, you know, some orphan in Indonesia that needs God to move a mountain to make a thing happen. This is Mary going to Jesus with what I would consider, like just putting my my Jesse, not a pastor hat on. Uh, I would consider like, this is big for me, but I don't know that this registers on God's radar, Right. I wonder if you have anything like that, that it's big for you, this is big for them, 
but you just like, you don't even bring it to God because it doesn't register on his radar. Does God even care? Does he have time to care about your marriage? I mean, I think he loves you, but like, does he have time to care about your marriage? I think he, the answer is yes, by the way. All these rhetorical questions are yes, but this is how we feel. This is how we think. We, we go to our friends and we say, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm really struggling with my boss. Like he's asking so much of me and I don't know if I can put it together. I feel, I feel inadequate. Oh, well, have you prayed about that? No, God doesn't have time for that. Like, are you sure? Are you sure? Mary's like, hey, they've, they've run out of wine. So the question is, does God care? Let's see what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus is the revealed nature of God. That's, that's one of the meanings of him being the word. And it says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And like, there's about four cynics in the room. Like, yeah, I told you. Yeah, God, God didn't care. Look at him. Like, it sounds like he didn't care. He's like, he talks to mom like that. Come on. You kidding me? Uh, let, let's hold our, let's hold our opinions for a second. Let's, let's unpack this for a little bit. Uh, raise your hand if you feel like, uh, as a child, you, uh, your mom is in the other room and she calls out to you and says, honey, take out the garbage. And you respond back, woman, it's not my time yet. How many of you, is that your last words on your tombstone right then? Yeah. Can we agree that that just doesn't end well? Yeah, absolutely. So, so when we read this with American ears, we hear some, we hear some condescension. We were like wondering, like, what just happened? Why is Jesus so angry? He's, he's not angry at all. It's something that's lost in translation. When, when Jesus begins with woman, it's, it's actually not strange because he sounds angry. It's strange because of how formal and how polite he is. It would be like going to your mother and being like, Yes, madam. Like, it's very formal. Like, yes, lady mom, lady Mary is, like, if you're into the English royal family, it's, it's, what he's beginning with is the most polite, the most formal, what you would say to, like, a professor, you know? So what's strange about it isn't that he was angry sounding. That's what we hear in American ears. What's strange about it is, like, he's talking to his mom, like, like he's never met her before, like, super, super polite. I think what's going on here is that he's honoring the fact that mom is playing an important role in this in this uh, wedding. I think that he sees mom not just as Ema, which is what he would call mom or mommy or something. He sees Mary as well. You're you've got a lot on your plate, and you're you're bringing to me a problem. And then he says, "What does this have to do with me?" Um, as as we unpack this, he he is going to respond to it. You already know the big miracle that's going to happen in a moment. Um, when he says, "What does this have to do with me?" It's almost like he's saying, "How how can I help?" Or what what is this? What how is this going to affect the messiahship? We what we see is that Jesus, from beginning of John to end of John, is on a mission. The next thing he says is, "You know, my hour is not yet come." So he asks a question. What does this have to do with me? And then he makes a statement, my hour has not yet come. And, and it seems to be that Jesus is really mission-minded. And he, he knows that there are things that he's called to do that are on God's timing. And when he says that his hour has not yet come, we hear that as, oh, Jesus doesn't have time for Mary. But when, when we look at John, John, the way that he unpacks this idea of the hour, it's, it's a big theme all the way through. Let, let, me, let me read a few verses. I think I have time for this. Uh, just the hour probably comes up. I think 20 times in the book of John. I just want to read a few of them. Uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 21, he's talking to the woman at the well. And he says, uh, again, he begins with the woman. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Skip down to verse 23. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And so the hour is like, he's like, it's, it's not yet 
time. What, what else? We have uh, chapter 5, verse 25 says, let's see. It says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There's the hour again. Two more. I'm going to look at chapter 7, verse uh, 30 says, so they were seeking to arrest him. They're trying to arrest Jesus, but no one laid on a hand on him because why? Because his hour had not yet come. They can't even get to him because it's not his hour. Last one, uh, John chapter 12 that I'll look at. T- 12 verse 23. It says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And so what we have in the book of John is these moments in Jesus' life where he's saying, it's not my time to go and make a big spectacle. It's not my time to take all of the spotlight and be on the cross. It's not yet my time. The hour, he's telling his mom, it's it's not time for me to flex my my power to demonstrate my messiahship, that that God has sent me to rescue people from their sins. Because if it was his time, then they're going to arrest him and they're going to put him on the cross. He's saying, it's not time for that yet, Mom. It's, it's, uh, it's not yet my hour. And so what does Mary do with this response? Does Mary, oh, it's not his time, I guess. Poor couple. I hope, I hope they love the next 60 years of their life in shame. It's going to be terrible. No, Mary's response is this, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I, I like, I like her, her response. I wonder, I wonder what she thinks Jesus is capable of in this moment. You've raised Jesus, you're Jesus' mom, you've raised Jesus for the last 30 years. I wonder if there's ever been a single moment where, you know, Joseph is like, hey, Jesus, go get me a cup of water. And it came back and it tasted a little different, you know. It's like, Mary's like, oh, I know what he can do. You know, like, she kind of knows that Jesus has his power. I wonder, I wonder how much of Jesus' character and power and divinity was known to Mary before. Um, complete mystery. We can speculate a lot. Her response is, not to Jesus, but to those who need to do something, do, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And she just kind of washes her hands of it and walks away. Now, when you and I pray, uh, we are talking to who? God, right? Okay. And so, and so what Mary just did is a prayer. It's just she's talking face-to-face with Jesus. When Mary prayed to Jesus, she has all problem, no solution. She has no idea how this is going to be fixed. She doesn't, she doesn't offer a solution. Hey, they've run out of wine. Jesus, can you make it rain welches down on us, please? No, like she never, she never offers a solution. It's all problem, no solution. Let me ask you a question. Are you comfortable? Are you comfortable praying prayers that are all problem and no solution? I'm generally not. I should be. That seems to be the lesson I'm supposed to take from this. I'm generally offering God all of the solutions. And if I can't think of a solution, I'll just like, God, I'll I'll get back to you in a moment. I wonder if God's like, come on, man. Like your imagination, Jesse, is so pitiful compared to what I can do. Compared to what God can imagine. He he can, listen, listen. He made the duckbill platypus for his own humor. It's the only example I can think of. His imagination far exceeds anything that I would come up with. Why would I hesitate to bring a prayer to God because my imagination can't imagine the solution to it? Mary brings all problem, no solution to Jesus. Jesus makes a statement and Mary's like, hey guys, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. I'm going to go enjoy the wedding and just walks away. Okay, and so what does is, what is Jesus say? I need to speed up. Jesus says, oh, excuse me, uh, verse six, we got to set the stage real quick. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. 
so much we can unpack. There's a, a whole Bible study about the Jewish rites of purification happening here. But um, Jewish rites of purification, big six stone water jars, they're heavy, okay? Each holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. That's a lot of water, okay? And Jesus says to the servants, remember Mary says, do whatever they, he tells you. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Now, John, he, he just passes over how quick this was. Hey, guys, do whatever Jesus tells you. Jesus turns. I want you to fill these six stone water jars all the way to the brim, all six of them. How long do you suspect that it takes to fill six stone water jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons apiece with water? Any, any guesses, I wonder? Like, could, could you do it like just, just like that? Uh, I, did, I did some research on it. Your, your water spigot at home, assuming it has like the, the registered amount of PSI, uh, if you just took a water hose from your house and you try to fill up these six stone water jars, you've got 120 to 180 gallons you're trying to fill up. Um, you, you put out about eight gallons a minute. You're going to be standing there with your water hose in the modern day, 15 to 23 minutes. Like, I don't know what he's doing. Do whatever he tells you to do. We're out of wine. Why are we filling up these jars with water? 15 to 23 minutes of you in America today standing with your water hose. And that's just a modern convenience because they didn't have running water in that day. They didn't have water hoses in that day. And so for them, they have to like go down to the well, fill up a bucket of water to the maximum amount that they can carry. They can't carry 120 gallons on their shoulders. It's like, I did the math on that. Uh, five gallons is 40 pounds. And so I figure a five-gallon bucket of water is kind of the max of what they're going to be carrying back and forth. And they're going to go to the well, fill up 40 gallons, and come back. Go to the well, fill up 40 gallons, and come back. Ever how long that walk is, ever how long it takes to fill up, to pour out, it's going to take them between 24 and 36 buckets. So if one servant is doing it, he's got 36 trips. Like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Like, why does it do whatever he tells me? Like, I've got 15 buckets, 16 buckets. You got to do 36 buckets. Imagine if you're doing this with a few friends, right? Cuts the trips down, but you're talking along the way. Do whatever he tells me. Like, all we did is bring him a problem. I have no idea what solution he's working on, but he says, bring these buckets. I wonder, I wonder if halfway through, like, one of the servants, like, I'm done. I'm, I, we're going to get fired anyway. Like, this party's done. I wonder if one of the servants is like, I'm out. But the, the last servant, there's just one guy left. He's like, he's, I'm going to do this. I don't know what Jesus can do, but I'm, I'm going to do this. Do whatever he tells you to do. Turns out, in this case, looks really slow. Turns out, to do whatever he tells you to do, in this case, looks really pointless. Turns out to do whatever Jesus tells you to do looks meaningless, looks unhelpful, looks like it's missing the point completely. The point, Jesus, is we're out of wine, not we're out of washing water for purification rites. We're at a wedding. We're not trying to purify anything. We're trying to have a party, not church, Jesus. Like, it looks so off base. And the only instruction they have for Mary is do whatever Jesus tells you to do. I wonder, let me ask this question. As, as we're kind of processing, like, I'm a follower of Jesus, I call him Lord, to call Jesus Lord is to do whatever he tells me to do. Are you willing to do whatever Jesus tells you to do, even when it looks slow, pointless, off-topic, meaningless? Looks like, looks like other people will probably make fun of you. The servants should be going to the, to the wine store and buying more wine. Instead, they're spending all of their time and all of their energy bringing these buckets of water. Why? Because Jesus said to, are you willing to do whatever Jesus tells you to do, even when it looks like it's not even close to the point. Maybe, 
Maybe Jesus' imagination for a solution far exceeds my imagination for a solution, your imagination for a solution. Maybe following Jesus, creator of the world, when he is the word, he's the foundation upon which we build our life on, maybe doing whatever he says to do, even when it doesn't make sense, is the smartest, wisest, best thing to do. Maybe that's where life is, is doing the things the way that Jesus says, even when they don't look like they made sense. Do whatever he says to do. So go fill them up. And so they did. And it says in verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, uh, excuse me, fill the, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim, all the way to the top. I like that it's the brim. It's not like a, like a 50% job. I, I, bet, I bet halfway through, Jesus is like, I can't see the water tension over the top of that lip. Like, I need you to fill it to the brim, buddy. And so one more bucket. Um, and, and it says in verse 8, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I wonder, I, wonder, I wonder who's scared in this moment. I just put water in the bucket. If you put water in the bucket, what do you get out of the bucket? You get water. The big problem isn't that we're out of water. The big problem isn't that they're thirsty, Jesus, or that they need to wash their hands. The big problem is that they're out of wine. And I'm about to bring the master of the feast a glass of well water that I just got out of this bucket. Like, I put water in the bucket, Jesus, and I know what's coming out. And so you scoop it out, and it's like, oh, uh, Changed colors. That's weird. Okay, and so you, you bring that. Let's let's keep going. And it says, uh, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. I love at no point did Jesus like wave his hand over the well. You know, Jesus is doing this like long distance stuff. He's all in the shadows. The only people who know that Jesus did anything, disciples, Mary, maybe, you know, like she's walked away. The servants are like, I have no idea how he did it. But it's like it's far away. Jesus is not taking the spotlight. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. He, he, he calls the groom over to celebrate. At no part in the story is the groom even aware a problem is happening. Um, for those of you who have been in a wedding and you, you were the groom or the bride, it is an exhausting social event of, hey, how are you doing? Oh, hey, I'm so glad you're here. By the time you're done, your hand hurts, your, your cheeks hurt from fake smiling, you're just so tired, you just want to get your toaster and go home. Like, there's so much happening. The groom at no point even knows that there's a problem, but because of the prayer of Mary, talking to Jesus about a problem. The solution has already come, and the groom is not even aware. And all the groom gets as a response to all the work that Jesus and Mary did, and the servants did, is he gets the honor. I wonder how long after the honeymoon did Mary go and be like, guys, you have no idea how close we came. Like your marriage was going to stink and Jesus just did this thing. I bet it was like a month later. It's just a card. Your wedding gift is the story of how Jesus saved your marriage. And he just hands it to him. You know, the risk here was that the groom and the bride would have no honor by the end of this. And Jesus, through what he did, gives this groom an extra portion of honor. Not just that they didn't run out of wine, but it's the best wine that this master of the party has ever had. And he's like, this is amazing. You get honor. Like, this is going to be the kind of guy that gets talked about. Like, you guys should have been at Bill's wedding. Like, it was awesome. Like, everybody was there. And like, everything is tasting one way, and then it tasted great. And like, it was so good. Um, I think, I think that Jesus 
enjoys giving a little bit more honor. At no point did this have some kind of universe cosmic consequence, and yet this marriage is blessed because of it. Verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs, uh, notice the word signs there, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. A quick word before we close about this idea of signs. Um, John refuses to use the word miracles or wonders. When we think of Jesus doing a thing, we think of power. We think of Jesus flexing what he does. But when John talks about them, he calls them signs. Why? Because signs point to something else. You don't go to the sign and think, oh, I found the sign. This is awesome. Imagine, imagine you are taking your family on uh, a vacation. You paid for this trip. You're going to go to Disney World in Orlando, Florida. That's a pretty good trip, right? It's a lot of fun. It's like a 13 and a half hour drive from here to Disney World. It's bonkers how boring that drive is. And you get all the way into Orlando. You round the corner. You, you see the big welcome to Disney World sign. You get you and the kids. You all get out of the car. You get in front of the sign. You take a big picture. You're like, yes, Disney World, this is great. You guys love this, right? Yeah, you guys love it. And then you get back in your car and you drive 13 and a half hours back here. And then you go show your friends your pictures of your vacation. Look, I found the sign to Disney World. They're like, did you go to Disney World? No, no, stopped at the sign. Got to the sign. I did, I did great. Here's, here's John's point. A lot of people, a lot of people, this is true today as it was then, a lot of people stop at the sign Jesus turned water into wine. Stop at the sign. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Stop at the sign. Jesus is a big, important person. And then we fall short of walking all the way into Disney World and seeing the beauty and the glory of who he is. What John just said there in verse 11 is, this is the first of his signs in Cana, and it manifested his glory. Those who knew what Jesus did didn't say, Jesus is a wine maker. No, they saw Jesus as something big, and he was glorified in that moment. For those who were close to Jesus, they saw him for what he was. Uh, before we close, I want to make a, just a quick statement about just alcohol in the Bible. Um, in in uh, the American church, uh, whether or not to drink alcohol is a really big, sticky subject um, for, for reasons that I won't get into how the history of that happened. If you get outside of America, Christians don't seem to talk about it very much. It seems to be very local to America. Let me, let me tell you uh, what, we, what we see right here. Um, that, that in scripture, uh, the consumption of wine is not considered a sin. If you, if you, um, are here and you're like, Hey, Jesse, I don't consume alcohol. I feel like for me, it's not the right move. You're amongst friends. Nobody's going to try to convince you otherwise. That, that's a, that's a valid position to take. If you are of the position like, Hey, Jesse, I don't, I don't see that's a big deal. I don't know why so many churches get hung up on the use of alcohol and all that. Okay. You're also amongst friends. There's plenty of people here that, that are that. But when, when we look at scripture, we see that there are warnings about the use of alcohol, not to pursue drunkenness and not to be a drunkard. And so there's ways to use this, what is considered a good thing, in a negative and sinful way. And so, and so what we want to kind of look at is like we base our understanding of what is and is not allowed on Scripture. And that for some people, due to, you know, you grew up and there was alcoholism in your family or just a, a personal conviction that, that alcohol is not for me or I've struggled with alcohol in the past and I'm making a stand like I'm no more going to take alcohol. That is a holy and right decision. For some people, doing whatever Jesus tells you to do is to say no to alcohol because it's robbing you of the life that he has promised you in him. 
For others, you're wondering like, okay, well, Jesse, why don't you teach against alcohol then if it's such a risk? Very simply, because the Bible doesn't teach explicitly, wholeheartedly, completely against alcohol. And so we don't want to fall into either side of the ditch as a church of, of, of like, you guys go get drunk. That's not what scripture says, okay? That, that, would, that would cause big problems in your life if alcoholism takes root in you. The other side of the ditch is like the pharisaical adding rules to the Bible that aren't there. There's a different kind of bondage in that. We believe that Jesus wants real freedom, not bondage in addiction and not bondage in rules that were never his. And so somewhere in the middle is in doing whatever Jesus tells you to do is the answer. And I believe that it's subjective and that it depends from person to person. Um, but now as, as we close this out, I just want to kind of highlight the story. Mary comes to him with a problem, all problem, no solution. Jesus makes a statement and then Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Let me ask this question as we, as we close. Are you willing to do whatever Jesus tells you to do, whatever he tells you to do. Most of the time, the thing that Jesus tells you to do is in the opposite direction of the advice of your friends. Your friends are like, they have it coming. Jesus says, go and forgive your enemy. Your friends say, you know what? You need to put your spouse, you need to tell your spouse where, you know, how they should be. And Jesus is like, no, I want you to submit one to another. Okay. That's, that's the biblical idea of marriage. Um, you, you, people in the world say, you know what, you, you deserve better. And Jesus might be saying, you know what, I didn't get what I deserve and it's okay to forgive and not get what you deserve. Sometimes doing whatever Jesus tells you to do is risky. It looks pointless. It looks slow. It looks like it doesn't even address the point. But if we're going to be followers of this Lord, if we're going to take John at his, at his word and believe that Jesus is the word upon which we should build our life on, then whatever you sense your Lord calling you to do, whether it's explicitly outlined in scripture or subjectively in your spirit, in your own prayer time, you feel the Lord calling you in a direction. Our only right response is yes. Are you willing to do whatever Jesus calls you to do? And I believe that if you do, you will find moments where honor shows up in the most unexpected ways. I believe that you'll find peace and life in the most unexpected ways because that seems to be how Jesus performs these, not miracles, but performs these signs. And they demonstrate when we follow him and we see him in action in our marriage and we see him in action when we're at our kid's art and we're fighting for the best things for our kid, when we see him in action for those prayer requests that are all problem, no solution, we see our Lord in action we see a beautiful picture of a glorified Jesus that is worth following. And life is in the wake of that. Life is in the shadow of following Jesus. Let me pray for us. Uh, I hope your team wins. I hope the team you don't like loses. Uh, blessings to you all. Uh, Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for joy and a chance to celebrate. May, may we find peace and hope in your name, Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to trust you, to do whatever you say, and um, reveal to us your glory as we see the signs for what they are, of your goodness and your beauty. You love us more than we can imagine. Uh, help us to trust you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.